<laughs> okay, so I just spent a couple hours working on an article. Yeah. I'm worried that people are really not going to like it. No, oh, but I mean, that that's 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 your tell that it's going to be great. I mean, didn't you write the article why Trump is always right or something like that? Um, I think it was actually titled The Fundamental Legitimacy of Donald Trump, yeah, which yeah. might actually sound worse. But um, just to just for the benefit of our readers, I I do not think that everything Trump has done is right. Of course. Yeah, just just to just, just to get it out there. there. Don't want to don't want to slur you too. But you bad. know, here's the thing. So sometimes I wonder cuz I obviously um, have a contrarian sensibility and if I see everyone believing in one particular thing or, or taking this, the side of one particular um, one particular side in an argument, I start to get a little bit suspicious. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it's exhausting to always defend yourself against attacks. And I wonder if like as we get older, do we do we sort of maintain the willingness to kind of put up with all of that? Like, you know, if I, if, you know, if I have kids one day or if I have like a family, am I really going to want to like wake up in the morning and see how people are responding to an article that I was kind of tr- contrarian in? And then I have to like deal with that for like a couple of days. Like, you know, so I, and it, you suspect not, right? I, I don't know. I don't know, but I wonder. I feel like I'm, I feel like, uh, I just, I don't know if I have that energy. I, I mean, I enjoy pushing people. I enjoy, um, challenge, you know, whatever. But yeah, anyway, that's what no. I was doing earlier today. But it's 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 one one uh, one wonders whether uh, you know why is it that that uh, uh, famous writers are ultimately terrible people often and are, have you know these like really fraught relationships with their families or absent. Um, yeah, I think I think I think if you have that in you that you need to like if that's driving you, uh, it drives out other important things in your life. I think that's true. I, I I've thought about that before. You know that 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 um, uh, well, and I've I've seen it. I, I'm a smidge older than you, and I've seen I've seen people cycle out as as uh, as families basically become you know the normal part of their lives, uh, and everything else then very much becomes secondary because it's normal. Because quite frankly, it should be that. Wait, what was that? Oh man, that was a noise. It's okay. Yeah, it's we fine. can just keep on going. Of course, no we'll one keep cares. On going. No one cares. <laughs> I, I forgot to turn on "Do Not Disturb" on this thing. There okay, yeah. yeah, should be fine now. Um, yeah, well, it makes sense that writing should be secondary if you have a family and people that depend on you for their daily survival, like babies or something. It, it sort of makes sense. Yeah, but um, but you're worried about it ultimately because. So are you okay? Let's 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 maybe let's let's approach it this way. Are you worried that that uh, you'll abandon something that's important to you? Or are you worried that it's too important to you and it'll impact your life other ways? In no, what direction actually, you know is the what? arrow? It, you know, if it if it happens, God willing, I mean, I, I would look forward to it. This this sense of a reprioritization that uh, I, I I mean, I'll always love writing. I love writing, but do I want it to be? the central thing in my life. Right. I don't know if I do. And I would actually, I'm not even sure if it is now, but it is very important to me. But I think I would welcome a situation where I didn't feel the need to like be in the throes of debate because that's the part that you, you there's like an adrenaline, adrenaline rush and you enjoy it and there's yeah. something exciting about it. Mm. But it, it, there's also the kind of like drop off afterwards where you feel almost emotionally exhausted because you put a lot of yourself into an argument and something that you care about. So, you know, I, I'm contrarian and that's fine, but I believe everything that I write right, and I take, right. so for me, there is a personal aspect of I'm making an argument means that I believe in it enough to actually write it. Yeah, Otherwise yeah. I wouldn't write it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I also have this other fantasy of like just being on this podcast mm. And you, you know how it is when when there's a, a new band and they have their first album and it's like really popular and stuff. Yes. But they get too popular, and then are you quitting the podcast? <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> but they, they get popular, then they're like, "Well, we're becoming too mainstream. We're an indie band," and then they come up with the second or third album that's like really dense and challenging and inaccessible, and they're almost like. Like fucking with the listener and chal- they're like, we want to make this as 
hard for you and we want to see if you still stay with us. Right. And we're going to like put out weird stuff and weird interludes and instrumentals right. and stuff with electronic blips. Mm. And we're going to see if our audience will stick with us. So sometimes I wonder if we just like kind of came here on the podcast and we just started saying really esoteric things to test our listeners, because I think that after especially the last couple episodes, we have some new listeners, people yeah. are getting into the podcast, but there's almost a part of me that wants to challenge them and oh, say, come on. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, okay, Shadi, when, when we're, when we're making millions of dollars in this, then we'll get experimental with the podcast <laughs> until that day. We get like another hundred people maybe listening. I, I, I'm fine to keep, keep it unchallenging as possible. Uh, we got to grow the audience until look, you get to the millions. Yeah. No, right? It's I a mean, fantasy. It, but it's, it's, it's also, it's, it's, you know, having, having played in bands before. I mean, it's, you know, stories like that. It's definitely a pattern. It's also just to me kind of offensive because it's, you know, that's, it's, it's, you've gotten so, so big for your britches. So, so haughty. That you don't even you don't even care anymore, and you you feel immortal. I, it's hubris ultimately, because a lot of these, you know, I, some people pull it off. Like I guess Radiohead, I would say, pulled it off up to a point, but they they kept pulling it off. I think you know after after uh, Kid A, maybe they should have yeah. like eased off on this sort of stuff. But no, they kept going. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, tastes differ on these things. But but in any case, I I, I do think more often than not. Uh, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing good comes of it. But anyway, uh, you know, as far as, uh, uh, getting in debates, the sort of methodology that you're describing here, um, like, for example, you, you, uh, you, you, uh, got into it, was it last week on the, uh, you know, about meritocracy and that little dust up about, about Mayor Pete? You, I saw you're on Twitter, you were, you were dusting it up there. What was the, the, did you, yeah, did you want yeah. to pick that fight? I mean, how, well, how did, how I don't did know, that? I don't know if it was a fight per se. I mean, I didn't. I was careful about how I worded the thread, and I, I gave it some thought. And it's something that I felt I just wanted to kind of share with people because I think that the two sides on the Pete Buttigieg McKinsey meritocracy debate it's become it's become a little bit aggressive. Yeah, you have like the pro Pete side, then you have like the anti Pete side. And I feel like increasingly there aren't really a lot of people who are just sort of somewhere in the middle on Pete, which is interesting because you don't think of him necessarily as a polarizing figure. But I thought that I had something to share because, um, as you know, Demir, and I've been quiet about it publicly and I haven't really like said anything up on, you know, up until just a couple days ago, which is that I was friends with Pete in grad school (laughs) and I knew him at this formative moment. And I was actually, we were actually in the same, liberalism reading group so we would get together uh every couple weeks and we would read some of the great liberal works um but actually more modern not like the classical the classical stuff but more 20th century um liberal (laughs) yes like i don't know if we actually did rawls uh but um I remember um, Niebuhr, mm. yeah, because there, there was that whole time when Obama was name checking Niebuhr, and everyone was like, "Oh, who's this guy Niebuhr?" Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and Arthur Schlesinger, Arthur <laughs> Schlesinger, Artie. Yeah. Artie. But so that would, um, so we actually, so in that context, we actually got into some pretty substantive debates and discussions. Me, Pete, a number of other people, many of them Americans. Who were studying abroad in Oxford? Some of them were um, Rhodes scholars, for better or worse. Yeah. So there was a kind of scene there in Oxford at that time. And then Pete and I were also involved in something called the Democratic Renaissance Project, and that was interesting because the starting premise of that is was that the Democratic Party had lost its way, and we had to kind of find our way back to having ambitious goals and to be unapologetically progressive and liberal and to move away from this third way centrism. So I think a lot of us were feeling that at that time. Um, democratic renewal of the party. So of in the, the party. American context, it wasn't a broader question about democracy. Oh, was, no, no, was sorry, about party. the Democratic Party yeah, specifically. Yeah. So all of us were in some sense on the left, although I think, you know, <laughs> even then I was pretty heterodox, I think. And maybe I was a bit, I, I was, I think I was a bit neocon even then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so like Pete's interesting because 
you know, you watch him over time and then you try to understand like what's really driving a person, right? And it's also kind of weird to be talking about someone who's my age, who, um, who I, who I, um, who I knew on a personal level and kind of went to school with, and here he is running for president. It's also sure. there's a surreal aspect to this, and you know it kind of leads to some funny conversations. Uh, this is a little like aside with my mom because you know she knows she's following Pete and she knows that I knew him um, in grad school. So that then now my my parents are kind of half joking, but I think also half serious when they bring this up. They're like, Shaddy, like, why can't you run for president? Because right. they don't understand. They're like, well, Pete, like, you guys are almost the same age. Right. Like, why should Pete run for president and not you? He's married, too. <laughs> why aren't you married, Shadi? That's It's funny you mentioned that. That has not come up, but that, that is a, that's an interesting point. <laughs> um, but, um, and, you know, I... I love that my parents actually have this kind of um, this this total faith in me, where they're like, "Wait, our son could be president? Like, mm. why? That's not like a totally un. It's not a totally unreasonable thing to to think, which is uh, which is adorable." Um, <laughs> but uh, but so then you know we make we're we're sort of getting at this age, I think, where there are people who we knew in earlier phases of their lives, and now they're doing some pretty incredible things, and I think with Pete. There's a couple things, and one thing I said in the thread to start out, just to be clear about how I'm coming at this, I res, you know, I said I respect Pete, but he's not the candidate I'm supporting. Sure. Um, and um, and I think that I've diverged from Pete. We've he's gone in a particular direction. I think I've gone in a particular direction, and those and that's fine, right? Right. Um, and I think that the way that I would describe Pete is that he does have progressive objectives as far as i can tell he still has them but that he he's very much i think i think he likes the idea of pragmatic means to get to those progressive ideals right right, right. and that gets to an interesting conversation of means versus ends and i think one danger one potential risk i mean it sounds very it sounds very reasonable why not be as pragmatic and somewhat incrementalist in your means, and that's a way to get to some to b- some bigger ambitions. But the risk there, and I think this is what we saw with Obama, but to some extent, is that your means you can't keep your means and ends completely separate. Right. If you are if you are committing yourself and you're engaged in these pragmatic, even let's say centrist means mm. and mechanisms you start to internalize that over time and it becomes a part of who you are. You can sort of keep this this um, Chinese wall. Okay, wait, Ooh, is that... Yeah, oh, that, might oh. be, yeah <laughs> that might not be okay. But no, I, actually, in, in the era of Trump and the bipartisan consensus... <laughs> but you can't... Wait, what is the reference to the Chinese wall? Like the Great Wall of China? <laughs> you know what? I'm, I, think, I would just assume it's about the Great Wall. Okay, let's just <laughs> pretend it's that, it's not something more horribly racist. Anyway, go on. But like you can't keep this wall of separation. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> barrier. Some might <laughs> barrier say barrier between between means and ends. Yeah. So that might be an ideal type. Sure. But can you really sustain that? And I think that's one concern I would have with Pete's approach is that you think it's possible, and maybe the idea is that once you're in power, then you can sort of be liberated to actually pursue your true ideals and objectives. But if you've been spending several years in this more quote unquote pragmatic policy space, that is going to have an effect on you. And I don't think that you can sort of revert to your original ambitions and in, in sort of like progressive policy terms. So that's one thing that I think is interesting. Mm. And that's also part of the debate, I think, between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders that Elizabeth Warren is is a true progressive, of course. I don't think anyone doubts that. But because she has these more technocratic means and she takes that more seriously and she wants her plans to work, that I think that that rubs some people the wrong way, that that's going to lead her ultimately in this more technocratic direction, that there's this kind of um, technocratic temptation that even if you're a progressive, if you focus on technocratic means... That that pushes you in a particular direction. So I, I mean, I've, I've seen people group, in fact, and it, it 
for whatever reason, with my own sort of you know blinders and how I'm paying attention, I've seen people group uh, Mayor Pete and uh, Elizabeth Warren actually kind of in a similar thing, even though their politics are so very different. Um, this idea of of uh, sort of like a model of change, and I think oddly enough, whoever it was, I, I guess I can look it up at some point, but it was it was. It was on Twitter, so again, it was it was <laughs> it was a throwaway. But the 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 line was that 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 Warren and uh, um, and Pete, to a certain extent, are more both technocratic as opposed to I think it was Bernie and Joe Biden, who were more like, well, you know, I'm selling you this vision thing. I that that caught me up short because I would have I would have uh, you know may, maybe just basically on on sort of ideological spectra, I would have put Pete. And Joe Biden together. I think that's sort of how a lot of people do think of them for sort of centrist reasons. But yet, yet, so I mean, clarify that for me. You were talking about Liz Warren just now as a technocrat. Is Pete a technocrat? You were talking about about this like meritocratic standpoint. We still need to get into what you mean by meritocracy. But but how how would you at least parse that? So I think first of all, most most products of the American meritocracy are in some sense technocrats. Mm-hmm. And we can get into why that might be the case in a second. But I, I've seen some pretty interesting data that Bernie and Biden are actually, to some extent, in a similar lane, right. as you suggested, and that um, Warren and Pete are in their own lane. And when I first saw that, I think it was somewhere on 538 where they were breaking this down, I was surprised. But then it kind of makes sense in a way that Warren appeals to a certain kind of college-educated voter who prizes sheer smarts and intelligence because both, obviously, Warren and Pete radiate intelligence, and I don't. I think it's hard to kind of you know contest that basic premise. So, I think that's what that's what that's their similarity. And sometimes people don't always look at policy specifics or the differences in their Medicare plans. One's obviously more Medicare for all. I think Pete has talked about Medicare for all who want it. Clever, I have to say. Um, tested, market tested. Market tested. <laughs> but you know what? And then what? But the, the more surprising thing that, that I've seen is that for, for, for many, or at least some Bernie voters, their second choice is Biden. Is and Biden, then you're like, yeah. how does that even comport? Yeah. It does make sense. It does, in a way, if you look at it from that perspective, that you have people who aren't as policy-centric and aren't as, they're not looking for that, like, sheer intelligence, then not to say that neither of them, I mean, they're both smart, but in different ways, obviously, than Warren and, and Pete. And their appeal, I think, is different to different kinds of people. I mean, even it's like a, it's a different approach to politics. One might say maybe that's a different way to 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 conceptualize it. Is right. I mean, it, it gets down to uh, technocrats offering competence, um, and and in a way, uh, Biden and 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 Bernie are just more personality politicians, mm. right? That they they're 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 traffic in, in charisma in a way that the other two aren't. Even though I, I personally was impressed by Warren's um, displays of sort of fire in some of the debates, I thought I thought she really pulled it off in a way that I didn't expect from her. I expected her. I mean, that was almost, and this was maybe in the in the third debate. I it, it maybe what was surprising about it is because I expected her to be a technocrat who you know uh, will appeal to me with solutions and but not really in the heart. Quite frankly, I mean that's the thing. I haven't watched all the debates. I, I have yet to really tune in uh, uh, all the way. But, uh, you know, all my friends that 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 end up sort of uh, being uh, Mayor Pete supporters, I see what the appeal is, but it's an intellectual appeal above everything else. Like, if there's an emotional appeal, it's after he's answered a question really well. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, nailed it! You yeah. know? Uh, but it's not, It's that's the emotional thing. It's not... It's not this 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 other thing, which I think both Biden and 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 Bernie have, and that's where the meritocratic element comes in. That I think that for for a lot of us who went through the meritocratic channels, Pete has a kind of inherent appeal, or if not Pete, then Elizabeth Warren. Um, and you know, I've diverged from that for a variety of reasons, and then you know, listeners to the podcast will probably have a sense of why. I mean, I'm I'm I've become more suspicious of centrism in both means and ends, in part because of 
the last um, the last eight to ten years, and certainly my experience with Obama as someone who started off as a true believer at Oxford, and for all I know, Pete was actually, I'm not sure if he was at our, we hosted this uh, fundraising party, me and a couple friends at our place in Oxford, and obviously, you know, a lot of Americans, uh, American, um, Americans were at Oxford came, and we were all, like, thrilled about Obama. I started off as someone who believed, um, but over time, I think I saw the inherent weaknesses of this sort of vague, the center left technocratic approach. And also I think Obama was very much someone who appealed to this idea of post ideology that were neither left nor right, red or blue, all of that, but that he was going to find the smartest people to tell us what worked and he would go with what worked. Right. This idea of being in the reality based community, that facts were everything. And I think that appeals to people who who kind of come up, um, you know, Harvard, Yale, like the top the top universities in the U.S. And this is something else I said in the tweet thread, which is from a pretty early age, there's a problematic incentive structure if you want to go through the meritocracy, where if you're too if you're too contrarian or too divergent from the conventional wisdom, but by conventional wisdom here, I mean the liberal, yeah. elite conventional wisdom, that there is a risk that you're taking. Right. And if you say things that are too interesting, it means you're saying things that are too controversial. And to and to be in the realm of controversy can be a problem. And I, I mentioned Alina Kagan, the Supreme Court Justice, as an example of this, that when people, during her nomination process, it was hard it was it was hard to uncover a paper trail of her saying anything vaguely interesting, and it actually worked to her advantage because if you want to become a supreme a Supreme Court justice, you probably don't want to have a paper trail of very controversial judicial opinions. Right, and there are a number of political positions that you can aspire to in America. In America, where if people look back at your record and they see you kind of being. Um, outside outside whatever the consensus happens to be that can really be a liability for you sure and i think that's actually a pretty problematic incentive structure to to um and for that to be part of our our set of considerations from a relatively early age when we go into college and that's and that's where the structures are pushing us that is i think potentially dangerous mm, mm. Yeah. yeah does that make sense no it totally makes sense you know the the um so, so, not to pull us too far off from it, but it, it's it's interestingly resonant, but in a different way. Uh, we recorded a podcast at, uh, at the American Interest earlier, and uh, three of my four colleagues uh, picked uh, similar books. It was sort of the end of the year, like favorite books podcast. Um, and it, without going into the details of the books, they all tied into, I think, a a. Um, uh, a facet of what's driving the populist thing these days. I think I was. It was. It was a. Uh, uh, you know. I, I, probably this podcast will come out before the the TAI one because we're we're saving it for the end of the year. But but uh, all three books get at this. Um, uh, I think fact that what's driving in different ways the populist reaction is um, uh, either a blind spot. Or an abdication of responsibility, or um, a failure. Again, this is—it's a little—it's a little, it's a little um, uh, almost trite to say it out loud. I mean, the failure of the elites, what have you. But I think you know what you're talking about um, about meritocracy. Ross Douthat's written about these things in similar ways. It's—it's um, it's not just—it's not simply just groupthink. It's that. The groupthink itself has so many um, givens, so many uh, uh, priors that are unexamined by most people uh, that just become, you know, it's this bubble creation sort of thing um, that ultimately, you know, as as it gets challenged, usually the challenge has been able to be brought down. But for whatever reason right now, it's not working. The challenge is, is, is not as simple to smack down as it has been in the past. I, I personally think it has a lot to do with the end of the Cold War, mm. that a lot of things have sort of opened up and, and 
still, it took quite a while between the end of the Cold War and now for this to, to really break down, obviously, the financial crisis and the rest of this. It's it's that um, part of the premises, and, you know, I think this is, it ties less to the sort of, you know, I think the, the popular understanding of meritocracy, but more for the sort of mentality it breeds, um, especially with someone like Mayor Pete, uh, it's it's this idea that that uh, certain things are beyond the pale of politics, and everything else we can do we can solve merely through technocratic means. It's the depoliticization of everything. I think it's it's somehow it's somehow a handmaiden of of meritocracy. I think that's you know when as as I was reading your 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 tweet thread, I think that's where I was coming at it from. Um, so in a way, you know. For me, the we talked about this uh, last few episodes. For me, the the um, uh, the sort of outraged reaction to uh, Emmanuel Macron's you know Economist interview uh, across across spectra of people um, had to do with with wait a second he was questioning things that that really are you know should have been beyond question at this point um, he was. Repoliticizing questions that really are are outside of it, and I think that's that's the key of it. And ultimately, you know, you and I both, uh, you know, both on the podcast and and off, uh, the Trump years, uh, for all their their peril and and horror, uh, have also presented just spectacles of this boor of a man uh, goring sacred cows mm. in in a spectacular fashion. Um, and watching people's heads explode, maybe it's it's this sort of I don't know whatever sense sense sensibility that 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 you and I share. Um, watching people's heads explode as it's happened has been really interesting and edifying in a way because because he's been able to yeah. do this right. So it's it's not that that either of you or I are are particularly sanguine on 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 Trump as a politician or Trumpism as. Even if it, we can even call it a, a coherent governing ideology, it's not that really. But the the phenomenon of of you know this bore of a man coming in and exploding all of this stuff, it, it's it's a dagger pointed at the heart of, I think what you're getting at, right? Exactly, and I think that both of us feel that Trump is really bad, and specific policy outcomes are really bad. But what Trump has contributed to is really the repoliticization of American politics. I mean, and I think that if we look back 10, 20, 30 years from now and we want to understand what made Trump such a such a unusually consequential president, it won't be at the level of policy, although that may factor somewhat, it will be at the level of these bigger trends. And once you repoliticize something, it's hard to undo that. And I think Trump has put into motion a number of things that I think will continue because I think both the left and the right in America have increasingly embraced the political as a category. And by that, I mean, and, um, you know, I have my, uh, Chantal move. Don't ask why I have it with me. You always have it. With yeah. You. I, I carry around carry my Chantal move book. Yeah. But I mean, she, you know, she really emphasizes this in her work, this idea of the political as a space where antagonism and conflict are inherently part of politics that, and they should be part of politics where I think with, um, <clears throat> I can't look, my sense is that with someone, with someone like Mayor Pete, he, d he perhaps, and it might not even be, let's, let's, let's talk about some, someone of like someone like Mayor Pete or, or some of his supporters that there's this sense that politics can be transcended and that we can move into a space of, consensus or agreement or that if we just find the things that improve people's lives that we can have this equivalent of a, a political group hug or something that's right and i think that that is fundamentally mistaken and we saw how it was in the case of obama because i think that was his ambition as well yeah of the this post ideal like this post partisan post ideological politics but what we found with even someone with someone like Obama is that you can't escape the political. The political is part of us because we don't agree 
on fundamental concerns and questions as Americans, and increasingly so, we don't agree on foundational existential issues about who we are and what it means to be American. So I think that we have to do away with this illusion of the possibility of consensus. And if we don't go into politics, so but if we go into politics believing that some hypothetical consensus is possible, it's a nice thought, but I worry it just sets us up for a deeper failure. Right, and that would be, I think, one of the the major concerns of the kind of centrist technocratic approach to politics. But also, just say before I forget one thing, and it might be controversial, <laughs> but <clears throat> I think that one thing that has helped me be more comfortable outside the consensus. And honestly, I don't think it would it would have been possible otherwise. I'm a person of color. Mm. And I think the fact that I'm brown and Muslim mm. <clears throat> has really freed me up to just do my own thing. That I don't have to worry the way maybe someone like Pete does or other or other uh quote unquote white liberals who do actually have to give some thought or a lot of thought to what they say before they say it. There are things I would not say publicly. And I'm not, there's, I mean, I say these things publicly. I make my arguments publicly against wokeness and all that. I would not be comfortable saying them if I wasn't who I am. And I think that is... Maybe you'd be a conservative then, right? Because that's the other thing. I think you've said this to <laughs> at some point, how conservatives are more intellectually interesting to you because they sort of stand outside of this, this liberal bubble. Right. Yes, I, mean, I have said that. that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I have no so problem may, saying that. So yeah. Maybe. I mean, you know, in the sense that, I, look, I, I, I don't. I. I it's funny. I, I work at this this center right publication, um, and I know when I when I went in at the beginning, you know, I, uh, Frank Fukuyama was my was my professor, as was Elliot Cohen at at, at Johns Hopkins, um, and you know, they I, I relied on both of them to to you know get into this magazine as it was being founded. They were the founding uh, on the editorial board, um, and I I was uh, uh, they're they're huge brains, both of them, really just incredible human beings, and you know just being in class with them, being able to avail myself of them was incredibly uh, uh, I don't know thrilling, um, and so. Obviously, you know, the magazine was starting. The whole premise of the magazine was a kind of centrism. It ended up drifting to the right. But I had much more conservative colleagues here from the beginning. Some of them are still here, in fact. Um, and I remember, especially early on, having these sort of debates being like, I'm not a conservative. Like, this, it's crazy. You know, like, I, I don't, I'm not socially conservative. This, that's, those are not my things. Um, but I, you know, that struck me at some point. And since I've known you, 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 you made that point about about you know conservatives being sort of un, uh, well, less burdened by some of these 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 orthodoxies and the ability to sort of maybe uh, uh, roam more freely intellectually. I mean, is that is that is that fair? Is that is that tied to what you're talking about? Fair enough yeah. about person of you know. I don't <laughs> I don't want to get to a point being like that. Conservatives are the equivalents of like. People of color and like <laughs> some sort of discrimination. I, I'm not. I'm not. I don't. I don't play that nonsense. But like, but you know what I mean. And to a certain extent, um, there's there's a there is a kind of 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 uh, you know call it broadly center yeah. left technocratic meritocratic or at least born of meritocracy uh, groupthink. And it's how do you how do you end up pulling yourself out of it? So you're saying as as a as a as a person of color that's that's been liberating. Uh, Whatever I, some sort of Slav immigrant that I am, I, I I played in punk bands to a certain extent. That made me sort of maybe more dismissive of 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 things. It's interesting. I've never actually thought of you, Demir, as a white liberal. You seem to be like beyond these normal categories. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I guess. <laughs> but, but but on your like but on your point, I think part of so I have this sense sometimes when I hear. My uh, conservative friends speaking, and we're we're in conversation or whatever here in D.C. I get the sense they speak without red lines in their peripheral vision. Where I think with many, especially white liberals, they're speaking, but you almost get the sense that they've already internalized where the boundaries are or where they should be, even if they don't quite realize it. There are just certain things you don't say, right? And even sometimes I'll say something. And then a friend will be like, oh, you're not supposed to say that, Shaddy. So even them 
simply acknowledging that. What does that mean when someone says, you're not supposed to say that? Right. It For me, it means <laughs> say it twice as loud. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's interesting. Um, and um, But yeah, so what does it mean? What does it mean to say, like, when someone tells you you shouldn't say that? How do you, how do you process that? Um, how do I process that? Well, this could be a whole episode, so I won't go into a lot of detail about this, but I had a... We're in I, an episode, you know. <laughs> go on, but go on. An episode within an episode. Yeah. That um, I also did this Twitter thread. Clearly, this has been a very productive time for Twitter threads on my part. But I also did one, like uh, a white liberal friend. I had said something along the lines of, I'm proud to be American. Yes. And she seemed somewhat taken aback that I had expressed this so openly and without apology. And I had also said something in the conversation along the lines of, I think America is the best country in the world, which to me is like a self-evident statement. But she's like, whoa. She like seemed genuinely surprised. She's like, Shadi, I haven't heard someone say that in such a long time. And she tr- she had trouble processing the very fact that I had said it. Yeah. And um, and I thought that maybe one of my thoughts was being a child of immigrants makes that kind of statement more acceptable because I've experienced America differently than a lot of people. Like for me, America is, is a miracle. Um, I mean, I am utterly in awe of how how this all happened. I mean, when I think about and we've talked before in a previous episode about watching my parents become American and how that's been a beautiful thing for me to watch and experience and see. They have no doubt in their minds that they are American, that this is their country. And that's not something you see as much in, in Europe among Muslim immigrants, you know? So, um, but it gets to this, but to go back to the original point, um, I think part of it too is if you're a liberal in the American sense, in the American political or, or sense, I should say, um, you already feel that you have reached the answers. There is already a kind of end of history. There's not a lot of, you don't need a whole lot of self-questioning because certain things work. Facts exist. Two plus two equals four. And certain things go without saying. So structural racism, it's just a fact. And the fact that anyone would question that is not so much a policy disagreement. It's actually something deeper. It's a denial of reality. It's a denial of the progressive endpoint that we've all ostensibly reached, right? And there's a lot of things like that, gay marriage. And um, when, when someone, when a liberal encounters someone who doesn't support gay marriage, again, it's not considered a legitimate policy difference. It's more that this person is in this category of badness that is outside the spectrum of what is acceptable. And I think a lot of things for liberals have have become sort of these uncontested ideas because we have reached the answer. Right, no, precisely. I mean that's that's the that's the uh uh that's what depoliticization ultimately ends up meaning, right? Is that all these things and and the the um the sort of Funny, I don't know. Funny is the right word, but the 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 handmaiden of all of this is this idea that follows uh, that mindset is that people need to be educated into right think. Yeah, exactly. And that it's it's only a process of of ignorance that leads to this. I mean, ignorance is a word that's bandied around. You're so ignorant that you don't get it. Now, you know, I mean, it, this is why, and it's it's such a it's such a nasty thing because you don't want to. Uh, give space or, you know, uh, make excuses for um, uh, the worst of Trump's uh, outbursts, especially on questions of race. And, uh, you know, uh, this is, you know, you don't want to get on any sort of slippery slope where you're, you're talking about uh, the non-reality of racism and things like that. That's, that's not, that's not what you want to do. But um, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, how do I put it? Um, you 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 almost have to pick to a certain extent uh, whether you are for democracy and 
you know, to your 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 uh, your muse Chantal Mouffe and mm. and the 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 conflict that it in, engenders and creates and the democracy as a resolution mechanism of this and you're heavily committed to that or this idea this really progressive idea of history which is that we as human beings are uh, moving towards a uh, a system of more and more enlightenment and that it's just a process of education now uh you know 43 years into my life i i'm increasingly uh uh not of the view about human improvement i mean maybe and that's coming back to the thing i i don't i don't i don't see myself as a conservative for those i don't see myself as a liberal for those reasons or at least as a progressive maybe that's that you know what conservatives end up being is this sort of uh you know uh uh, uh, pessimists about human nature. Maybe that's 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 where my conservatism comes from. Um, this idea that we can educate ourselves to uh, um, you know towards some kind of uh, you know better humanity. Um, I'm skeptical of it. I'm I'm skeptical of it. That's that's one of my priors that I approach these things. This is not to say that we can't have more just societies. This is not to say that we can't improve things. Uh, but it is ultimately why I, I, you know, maybe especially in this moment where uh, liberal progressivism has embraced to such an extent this radical sense of um, both righteousness on the one side uh, and an ability to, you know, uh, to feel that if only we did X, Y, and Z, we could educate, again, the voters in such a way that 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 all the rest of this that politics that democracy as a as a resolution mechanism becomes so secondary to all of it that that i i it, it is a contemptible position i think this this yeah. this like technocrat it's it's literally contemptible i mean um, so it's number one it's it's demeaning right in the sense that you're saying that oh these um these masses who unfortunately have not seen the light, if only we gave them more information and wrote them explainers, right. they would <laughs> they would understand right. the truth. Right. That's literally what we're talking about here. Um and it's offensive. Like, can you imagine like being on the receiving end of that? Sure. Um and I think it's also um uh, it just it's contrary to I think both of our understandings of human nature. Mm. So there's something about this progressivism that that has no end because it's always searching for the next end that is just it doesn't fit with who we are in the sense that that's not actually how human beings operate in real life. And in that sense it's utopian, it's overambitious. I think there's I I'm someone who wants to be ambitious in our politics, but I think when it comes to culture we have to be a little bit more modest. That said, I, I will maybe push back on one thing that I don't think it it should it is or should only be a conservative position to say that there is there that there is no end point that people on the left should be able to say that there is no end to history. Right. Well, they should. They should. Now, this is why I've increasingly seen myself as not of the center left and more somewhere in this wilderness of this weird leftism that overlaps sometimes with the right. Mm, mm. <laughs> and this is actually the interesting thing. So, I mean, horseshoe theory is, I think, a little bit too simplistic. This idea or, that I mean, <laughs> if you go too much to the left, you end up on the right. I, horseshoe theory generally means it's the rise of Hitler, right? <laughs> I mean, so, I mean... I, <laughs> Oh my god! It's when the communists and the Nazis, you know, like end up anyway. But go yeah, on. so I, I think that's I think that horseshoe theory is like a total oversimplification. But I think there is a, a shared a shared premise on on the post liberal right and the post liberal left that politics is conflict. Yeah, and that tradition is much more prevalent in Europe than it is here in the U.S. So the fact that Chantal Mouffe is actually pretty well known. In Europe, as well as her um, her her husband, who who passed away a few years ago, um, Leclau, that they they were very much the one. They were two key people in this reconceptualization of politics, and they influenced leftist parties like uh, Podemos in um, 
in Spain and Syriza in uh, in Greece, and that's that's part of the leftist tradition there. I think we're still getting to that point, and that's why I think it's it's, it's exciting that people like Bernie. I don't think Bernie's a Mufi, and I'm not sure if he's read Muf. That would actually be an interesting question. Like, mm. are you aware? That, and that would be fascinating to me um, if I ever had the chance to ask him that specifically. But I think that these ideas are starting to be introduced more in the American political debate, and to the extent that I can help, pop, I, you know, no, no, sure. I it, what what's 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 interesting to me about that is that I, I is is uh, again I people's perspectives on this but this idea that the europeans are somehow further along on this than than we are i, I think is, is it's it's that's a a wild thought to me ultimately because you know um uh the dominant figure in european thought on this is jürgen habermas and and you know habermasian approach is the is the EU approach. I mean, if you if you want to map onto sort of politics, European politics, you, you go to Jurgen Habermas, and um, if you're going to um, criticize or if you want to grapple with the the problems of European European politics, it's it's that you know the Habermasian depoliticization thing is dominant. That in fact the entire European project is. Uh, uh, an attempt to realize the ultimate depoliticization of everything. The entire thrust of Europe is to overcome the horrors of World War II, which in the common reading is one of, uh, of difference uh, and national difference and nationalism, uh, you know, taken to its logical ends, which leads to genocide. Um, that that is the founding principle of Europe, not not Chantal Mouffe, <laughs> and so and so you know uh, the fact that again you know the book I picked for for my end of the year um, is by this Dutchman uh, Luke von Middelaar. Uh, it's a terrific book, um, and you know I I you know I encourage you to read it at some point because you know Chantal Mouffe is a uh, left Schmittian uh, person hmm. like leverages Schmidt. Uh, Luke von Middelaar also, you know, talks about the fact that this depoliticization of Europe since, you know, especially uh, as Europe has grown and had grown like into ambitions of, of creating this kind of state, uh, the super state, uh, the, the, the limits of creating anything that's depoliticized and the, the pushback it gets from normal democratic societies are its doom. Ultimately, why that book is so interesting and powerful for an American, not for a European, mm. is that the European Union, when we talk about liberal world order, when you know you get these people around Washington, they're like, oh my God, the liberal world order, it's being destroyed. It's, it's the liberal world order best applied and created is the European Union with all its flaws, with all its pretensions for depoliticizing everything, mm. for removing debate for non-agonistic things, for the destruction of nation-states because Hitler, because all of this sort of stuff. And, you know, again, I, I, my, my, uh, my parents live in Croatia. I, I visit all the time, most recent EU country. Uh, I, beyond drawing my roots, I spend a fair bit of time there. I, I try not to be glib about this, but in the same sort of way that watching... Um, uh, you know, that bore Donald Trump torpedo all these pretty lies here. I, I can't help but, 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 you know, watch what's happening in Europe with some sense of like, not thrill, but my God, people, can't you see it? You know what I mean? And so the, 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 the crazy reactions of people to, uh, what's happening, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 amazing to watch. I guess that's the best way to put it. It's amazing to watch, um, and and it's all tied together. I think it really is to to what you were getting at at with this sort of mentality, this closed, um, meritocratic, uh, you know, uh, haughty, solution based approach to the world, to problems, to everything, uh, and it's all tied to this idea that that. You know where we're heading is depoliticization. I mean, we, you know, we're really going to get into a into a, 
a tangent if we go too far on this, but for example, even even environmentalism right now, you know, uh, Greta, Greta Thunberg was just given yeah. the uh, Time Person of the Year. Not to say that 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 uh, you know the environmental crisis is not important and we shouldn't be thinking about this a lot, but there is this idea. It's just like. You know, it's the, apothe- uh, the apotheosis of a lot of this stuff. It's like, well, it's a technical problem. If only we X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. And God damn it, politics just keeps getting in the way. And pesky people, because they want to do all these bad things, it's, 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 uh, uh, for me, it, it's really sort of hard to, to, uh, not be sort of contemptuous of this. Yeah. So I think Michael Bloomberg is sort of, the logical endpoint of solutionism. Mm. And it shows how there is a strong authoritarian component to technocracy um, if it is unchecked. Um, so actually, there was a really interesting piece by uh, one of my colleagues, Natan Sachs. He was writing about Israeli politics. And I think the title or like one of the ideas in there was something like against solutionism. Mm. He was saying that we as Americans have trouble understanding Israeli politics and BB and the stuff that we think is like, why the, you know, why is he doing all this like terrible, crazy stuff where BB doesn't actually think that there are solutions to certain problems. In other words, that the Israeli Palestinian conflict will not be solved. Right. And that, um, it's just a different way of looking at the world. Right. Um, we as Americans, I think our tendency is to see a problem. And that's, this is the way we talk about Israel-Palestine, that there must we have to choose between one of two solutions. There is, of course, a third alternative, which is neither. Right. Right. And right. We, you know, we both, from our, you know, when we were in Israel a few months ago, I think we both came out of it with that sort of conclusion. Yes. That that's actually perhaps the most likely option. I wanted to ask you, though, your point on Europe is interesting, that Europe is in some sense the epitome of the liberal end of history. But at the same time, that liberal depoliticization has coexisted with rather vibrant far lefts and far rights. So it's interesting that there would be that coexistence in the first place, that unlike the U.S. until perhaps fairly recently, Europe has had a much like there is a proper far right in Europe that has been there. Yeah. No. And not just like overnight. No, for sure. Yeah. But also um there has been a far left. You know, the commun various communist parties throughout Western Europe were doing quite well winning somewhere between 15 and 25% of of the vote you know after after World War 2. No, no. So, I mean, uh to be clear, uh, you know the the Cold War period, um, and then the the post Cold War period. Uh, it's it's different, right? I mean, up until up until uh, Treaty of Maastricht, it's it's you have uh, it's still just a common market, uh, the European level, and you do and you have communism and you know communist parties doing this. What's interesting about um, the period uh, since the end of the Cold War as the European project has has gotten more end of history like more um, uh, technocratic um, is that and this is one of the the points in that book is that in doing so uh, it took in a lot of the logic of uh, what it takes to create a market, which is rulemaking. You set up a set of rules and rules are technocratic to set up a functioning market it's just pure pure rationality and you know you can you can solve these things in in a way that that you know uh it's a a win for all um but that there's more to something if you're trying to create some kind of state there's more to it than just that and the uh the point that that uh Luke von Mindlar makes is that the post 1989 european project has in fact made no space for these things and in creating no space for for these parties at all uh, yeah, sure. You get Nigel Farage and and UKIP grandstanding in the European Parliament, but uh, you know it's 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 a sideshow to a certain extent. But by not incorporating those politics within the decision making process, they were allowed if they could win you know European Parliament seats, they can come in and, and make a spectacle. But by not incorporating these breaks uh, systemically into the system, 
the European system gelded itself ultimately. So, you know, it would get corrections from, from referenda here and there when people would say no to constitutions, no to, to any of these questions of overexpansion. But ultimately, he sees Brexit um, as, as the big, uh, the most profound break on this by, and the most profound tell of uh, what happens if you depoliticize too much. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's that I think specifically since 1989, the Europeans have been ahead of us uh, in realizing uh, the liberal world order as most people would love it. Most people in this town that are proponents of the liberal world order would love to see it realized in the world, which is that politics is a problem, that uh, the will of the uneducated gets in the, pro- in the way of, you know, right think. Um, and and uh, the fact that it's falling apart in Europe, I think, should be a lesson to us all. That's why this book is, is so good um, because – it just talks about Europe and talks about these things, but he's very clear that for the European project, uh, this is a this is a, a real a real lesson. And you know, he makes a case that Europe is adapting as well. Uh, I think we're adapting as the broader West, the broad liberal West. We're, we're adapting as well. To your point, that you know, uh, these ideas and you know, bringing them over here. Um, but uh, what's 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 so interesting about it is that uh, you know. I don't think we're we're we haven't yet. I, I don't think we've reached a critical mass of people truly seeing what's happening. It's still it's still too easy to say uh, uh, that Trump is doing the bidding of authoritarians. And again, I mean, this is now too late in the podcast to get into this, but this is why I'm so against this idea of the authoritarian challenge because uh, it's it creates a category that is 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 so simple to. To throw things we don't like into, uh, when in fact uh, uh, the the uh, reaction to this self-satisfied uh, liberal complacency uh, sometimes takes authoritarian forms, sometimes takes uh, less authoritarian forms. But that, to me, is everything. The fact that that um, uh, that mm. there is mm. this pushback. So, okay, there's a lot there. This there's a lot this there, especially as, especially as we approach one hour, Shadi. So, it does, again, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. It never does. It never does. So, so one thing is that I, I think it's possible to understand far right parties like the AFD in Germany or the League in Italy as specifically responses to depoliticization. The politicization of politics, yeah, and they're not then an aberration. They aren't an accident. They aren't something to defeat or to discount or dismiss. They are there because of other things that happened prior, right? Yeah. So I think in that sense, the repoliticization or the depoliticization that that kind of lens is very important for understanding the rise of the far right in recent years in Europe. Um, Brexit's interesting because I wonder if I was someone who felt that the EU was the major exponent of depoliticization of this liberal end of historicity, that I as a British person might actually see that as a rather fundamental threat. And I could even, I could say, well, okay, Brexit will um, decrease GDP by 0.5% per year or something. It will actually make life worse for me on a personal level. But if freeing myself, ourselves as British people from the EU would allow for a repoliticization of politics, then that would be good. Like that, I can, this is just me kind of thinking through what the thought process might look like. Yeah. And that, I think, is actually one of the strongest arguments for Brexit, that it might be bad in, in, in cert, according to certain metrics in certain, from an, a certain objective sense of things, but it comes down to values and priorities. If people prioritize this word sovereignty, which obviously can be problematic, but I can also understand a less negative or pejorative understanding of sovereignty where it's like, 
we want Britain to be political. Yep. And we want it to be free to be political. Does that? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's exactly right. I, I and that's that's the that's the uh, uh, the kicker in that book. Ultimately, is that this this Dutch political philosopher, uh, a a strong Europeanist who uh, you know uh, served in the the uh, the cabinet of the president of the European Council, uh, uh, von Rompuy from I don't know I think through. Uh, anyway, I don't remember the dates off the top of my head. Um, comes out with a lot of understanding for what's happening. And that's why the book is so powerful, and I think it's important to read for everyone. Mm. Um, but it, it's it's you know to not get bogged down in the European things. Um, I think it has so many resonances for everything that's going on in the broader West. Uh, both both our elections here, and ultimately. This is why I feel, you know, I mean, it's been somewhat retroactive, but why I, I'm so bitter about the uh, the whole Russia conspiracy narrative, because you, I, I've almost been waiting for people to say that Emmanuel Macron has been bought by by Putin somehow, because <laughs> because. Uh, because ultimately it's exactly that, you know, it's, 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 it's playing into his hands. And again, Shadi, I mean, I, I do think we need to do an episode on, on the authoritarian challenge at some point, because I think this is important. This is for me why the authoritarian challenge obscures more than it reveals. Um, I, 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 I can already sense where you and I can agree that, you know, uh, authority, really existing authoritarianism is bad and we need to like, you know, basically yeah well that's my position be against it but but the problem is is that as a rhetorical position it just lets you it lets people uh put anyone who's a critic of the liberal world order and i don't mean liberalism as an organizing principle i mean the depoliticized liberal world order um any critic of that gets lumped in with the rest of this again this is why Macronism to me is so fascinating because he is it's hard to do that to him. Uh yeah, but one doesn't have to go with the other, right? Hmm? One doesn't have to go with the other. So I'm someone who does actually believe there's an authoritarian challenge and that Western countries should um should organize against the rise of authoritarianism. But I would never be someone I would never dismiss whatever other problems I have with the AFD, with anti-Muslim attitudes and all that, I wouldn't want to dismiss the AFD out of hand as, oh, they're Russian stooges. And that's language I never use sure, because sure. I think that that's contrary to the democratic spirit, that these are parties that have a right to participate in Germany or elsewhere in Europe, and that to try to dismiss them preemptively as being beholden to a foreign power there's something really problematic about that because you're not contesting ideas. You're not actually understanding where the grievances that drive the AFD actually come from. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, well, anyway, it should be a pretty good, uh, <laughs> it should be a pretty good, uh, 2020 ahead of us. Right. Well, I mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, I think we, we have, we have plenty to talk. It sounds about. like a threat, a threat. No, no, no. no I, I mean, look, 2020 could actually be, be worse than 2019. That's actually what I worry about. Right, how so? What's what? What could be worse? So there is this side of me that's in tune, perhaps, with the darker aspects of human nature that sort of assumes, as a starting point, that the next year will be worse than the previous one. Yeah. That there's this almost maybe not in the broader sweep of history. Obviously. 2019 and 2020 are much better, in my view, than, say, I don't know, um, 1954. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or 1962. Yeah. So we also have to keep this in perspective. But for those of us who were born in the 80s, I think there is a sense that each subsequent year will be in some sense worse than the previous one, or at least will feel that it's worse than the previous one. So some of this also has to do with perception. In 
years may not be worse than other years according to certain object objective metrics, but what does matter is what we feel. And clearly there's a sense of like apocalyptic that something is fundamentally wrong and that, that seems to grow with every year and, and or every passing week for that matter, that we just don't feel right about things. Mm. And if we feel that, in some sense, it's real to us, irrespective of what the objective metrics say. No, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, I... Wait, 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 you don't like that? I don't like it. I, I mean, of course, <laughs> is that I don't too, like wait, it. Wait, is that too post, what, is that postmodern or yeah, something? Yeah, something like that. No, I mean, don't you think, don't you think that, that, that that's our role to, to keep it in perspective? That it's been worse? We're, we're still not shooting each other on campuses, you know? We're not sending the, the, uh, the National Guard to, to shoot student protesters. I, that's, I, I still think we're, we're far short of these things. And that's why I said we're better than 1962 or, for that matter, 1967. Right, so, so exactly that. So, you know, it, just because, just because it's, it's, it's lived and experienced doesn't mean we need to valorize or, experience to that extent. Or as um, Tom York says in the classic Radiohead song from Kid A, yeah. The Optimist, um, the refrain, as you might recall, is "Just because you feel it doesn't mean it's there." Do you remember that song? I do remember that song, <laughs> Shadi. That's a great place to end this. <laughs> oh my God. We've gone, we've gone, we've gone full circle. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Excellent. See you next time. See you, Demir. Bye. Bye.